Good morning, Eastgate Bible Church. Uh, sorry I'm unable to be with you this morning. Uh, Mel has been out of school all week, unwell, and I thought I was going to get away with it, um, but I've become unwell, so unable to be there this morning, but do hope that, God willing, I'll be able to be back with you again next week. And as a result of that, we're looking at something different this morning than what was originally intended. Uh, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we were going to be looking at chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, but that passage deals with such a sensitive topic, questions around divorce and remarriage, and I just didn't feel comfortable speaking on a topic that is that personal and that sensitive via a video message when A, I can't see people face to face, and B, when I'm not around to answer the inevitable questions that it raises. Um, so God willing, I would hope to be back there again next Sunday and we'll look at that passage then. Uh, but for this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7, as hopefully Kylie uh, has read for you before this time. Uh, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that your word never returns to you void. It doesn't say that it doesn't return to you void as long as the person who is delivering it is fully healthy. But Lord, your word is powerful and life-changing. Those who speak your word are nothing more than your servants. And Lord, I pray that you'll be pleased to speak through your servant this morning. And that your spirit would be at work in me as I speak and in all of us as we hear and respond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, who has never heard the expression, Oh, but you promised. Now, sometimes when somebody says that, you haven't actually promised. It's kind of being used as a leverage to make you do something that they want you to do. But then there are times when it's a true statement. You did promise and you weren't able to follow through on that promise for whatever means. But when a child says, but you promised, and you did, it's because they understand rightly that a promise should be a guarantee. It should be something that is intended to follow through, that is intended to come to pass. But I fear that in our world, in our culture, we treat the word promise as something that I have best intentions of doing that might be subject to change if something else happens or something better comes along. And there's a real danger if we take that concept of promise and apply that to God to think that his promises are something that, you no, know, he best hopes to do this, but you know, things might change. Then that's going to give us a very shaky faith and it's gonna greatly misrepresent our God. Everything our God promises comes to pass without exception. There is nothing that can stand in the way or against the promises that God makes. Now today we're looking at one of the most significant promises of the Old Testament. A promise that God made to David that one from his line would sit on a throne for all eternity. And as we work our way through 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to first see David's plan in verses 1 to 3. 
Then the contrasting plan of God in verses 4 to 17. How David, the Lord's king, responds in prayer in verses 18 to 19. And then we're going to see how God's promise endures and plays out throughout the scriptures, uh, looking at various different texts and wrapping it up with the sure promises of God. So we begin first with David's plan. Now, I know we haven't been preaching our way through 2 Samuel, but just by reading simply those first three verses, one thing is apparently clear. David is king. It says it in three times on those first three verses. David is the king. And not only is he the king, he has been a successful king and a king who has delivered everything that the people wanted. Like it says, he has given them rest from all of their enemies. Now, as David's sitting at home in his lovely cedar home, he's pondering himself and he's pondering God. And he sees something by way of inequality. As he looks around at the cedar house that he's sitting within, he can't help but think of the almighty God who dwells in an ark in a tent or a, or a tabernacle. And he thinks, that doesn't line up. Who am I? I'm just his servant, yet I've got all this, and he's yet but in a tent. And so it comes in, in David's heart, I should build something better for God. And as he shares that thought with the prophet Nathan, even Nathan, he agrees, great idea. Whatever's in your heart, go with that. And that should serve as a, a good reminder and warning to us that just because we think something is a good idea, and maybe even if people who are around us also agree that it's a good idea, does not necessarily mean that that thing is the will and plan of God. In fact, what we're about to see as God reveals his plan through Nathan to David, it is very different and the plan that both David and Nathan thought was good. So let's look at God's plan in verses 4 to 17. Now, contrary to David, who had a plan to build something for God to dwell within, God's plan is revealed is he wants to build a house for David. Now, there's a little bit of a play on words there because house can mean like a physical structure, like a house that we might live in, or it can refer to a family or a dynasty or a kingdom. So what David has in mind is to build some form of structure for the ark and for God's presence to dwell within. Yet what God's plan is to build for David is not a, a physical dwelling, although he does We'll see in the, the near future how David's son Solomon builds a temple. But he's speaking about an everlasting kingdom, one from David's own lineage, who would have a kingdom that endures for all times. Now, God doesn't need David to build him a house. Like, it's very clear that up until this point in time, the Lord has led them out of Egypt. He has tabernacled with them throughout the wilderness. He's been able to provide for them. He's been able to atone for them. He's been able to do everything. He's not in need. He's never requested something be built 
for him. And even though David's desire is to build a structure, it's not him who will build something in which the people and God would meet within. It is his son Solomon who eventually will build a temple. But a temple that is nothing more than temporary. Something that serves as a function to point forward to something bigger and greater. You see, God was never intended to be constrained to a building. Like even as God tabernacled amongst his people, that doesn't mean that his presence was isolated to one geographical place and somehow he just wasn't omnipresent during that time. He cannot be contained. Think about John as he introduces Jesus in his gospel and he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Then he come down to verse 14 where he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or literally, tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has tabernacled amongst his people in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't need something to be built. And it's also explained in the scriptures why it is that it is David who will not be the one who builds the temple. When we read from 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, it says, But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in those days. But even still, the central point of Second Samuel chapter 7 is not about the building of a structure, the building of a temple that Solomon would one day build. Even that is just a, a shadow or a type of a greater coming of a temple, of a dwelling amongst God, um, of God amongst his people. This is not the fulfillment of this everlasting kingdom. It was by nature temporary. It was not everlasting and eternal. And so what God has promised is he will build David a house, a kingdom that is forever, that has no end. Now, as we commonly refer to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we often refer to it as being the Davidic covenant. But the word covenant itself is found nowhere in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Sure, some of the language that you usually find within a covenant is there, but you need to look actually outside of 2 Samuel 7 to see this referred to as a covenant which God made with David. For example, 2 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 7, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Or likewise in Psalm 89 verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. 
I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And it's an important to notice there that it is not David who makes a covenant with God. It is rather God who makes a covenant with David. And because it is God who is the initiator and the one who formed this covenant, then you have an assurance and a guarantee that that which he has promised will indeed come to pass. And the content of what was covenanted, the content of what was promised, we see described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Take a look at these. I will make for you a great name, verse 9. I will appoint a place for my people, verse 10. I will give you rest from your enemies, in verse 11. And I will raise your offspring and establish a kingdom forever, verses 12, 13, and 16. Make you a great name, appoint a place for you, give you rest from your enemies, and give you an everlasting kingdom. These are great and precious promises. And unlike worldly promises where there's a hope or a expectation that as long as nothing else happens, what the Lord promises is guaranteed. It cannot be undone. Unlike worldly promises, nothing can hinder this plan from coming to pass. In verses 12 to 13, we see that death cannot and does not annul these promises. We see in verses 14 to 15 that sin cannot destroy these promises. Even when the son, described in verse 14, commits iniquity, does not invalidate this promise. And in verse 16, nor does time exhaust it. Three times we see it is a covenant which is forever. So who is this one whom verses 11 to 17 point to. Now in Old Testament prophecy, it's not uncommon that there are like stages of fulfillment, that there is a, a nearer short term and a lesser fulfillment that points you to a greater and complete and fuller fulfillment. And that would be the case here in 2 Samuel 7 verses 11 through to 17. Especially when you ponder a verse like verse 14, which says, it will, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. Now surely that aspect of committing iniquity cannot be ascribed to Christ who was sinless. He was punished for our iniquity, not for his so we would imagine there is a fulfillment in a smaller and a shorter term scale for David's son Solomon that looks forward to a greater and fuller fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's think about this David. Remember when he was chosen to be king, his father Jesse didn't even bother bringing him in. He left him out in the field. He's like, I'll bring all the other guys in, but no, not David. He can do what he's doing. You, you don't want him. Yet he was God's chosen. He was God's chosen king, a man after God's own heart. So how does this shepherd boy respond, not just to being king, but being told that God would grant to him and his household an everlasting kingdom? 
But we see David respond in prayer. David was indeed God's king, but he was humbled even by the fact that he was God's king. He says, who am I? Who am I in verse 18 that you have brought me even this far? Never mind that you would bless me with an an everlasting kingdom through one of my descendants. But as you read through David's prayer, where is his focus? His focus is never, you know, you know, I'm the man. No wonder you chose me. Good, good choice. I'm the best man you've ever had, the best man you ever will have. Now we see repeated in David's prayer, O Lord God. He recognized that there is a God who is the Lord. He is the master. He is the ruler. That David is nothing more than his servant carrying out his purposes, his plan, and his rule. David's confidence that this promise will come to pass doesn't rest upon his ability, doesn't rest upon his genes getting passed down to Solomon and and future generations. His confidence rests upon the one who made the promise, the Lord God Almighty. But how does this promise work out throughout scriptures? I mean, if you look through David's descendants, none of them brought a secure place for Israel or Judah and protected them from their enemies. In fact, we see that historically, as you read through the Old Testament, they were taken into into captivity by the Babylonians. But God's promise endures. So let's have a little look how it plays out. Now, because they know that when God promises something, it cannot help but come to pass. So that means that even when their own circumstances have gone way off the path, when things are looking dire, they remember his promises because they realize their circumstances are not a hindrance to the promises of God. Let's have a look at just some of the occasions when they reflect upon God's promise to David. Firstly, one which we commonly we have uh, read around Christmas, speaking of the birth of Christ. We read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Or in Jeremiah chapter 23 verses 5 to 6. Behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah shall be saved and all Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. And lastly, from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 to 28. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. 
They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Now that's far from a comprehensive list of the times which Old Testament Israel reflected upon this promise, even when their own situation and circumstances looked dire. But what we see them in the Old Testament holding on to the promise, as we move over to the New Testament, we see the introduction to the fulfillment of that promise. And firstly, as the angel speaks to Mary about the son that she is going to give birth to. We read this in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So in the arrival of Jesus Christ, it is announced beforehand, this is the one to whom the promise pointed to. This is the king who will reign and have an everlasting kingdom. Then after his death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father to rule and to reign, and the sending of his spirit at Pentecost, then when under the inspiration of the spirit, Peter, as he's preaching his famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, says these words, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us until this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, that is, Master, Ruler, and Christ, the Anointed King, the Messiah. This Jesus, whom you crucified. David had prophesied that Jesus would be the one, by his resurrection, who would sit upon his throne forever as the Lord and Christ. David's promised descended king has come, has begun to reign, and will come in his fullness at the day in which he returns. So let's think a little bit about God and his sure promises. Every single promise that God has ever made is rock solid. It is unchangeable. It is guaranteed. But this promise that was made for David, it didn't happen the next week or a few days down the track or a couple of months or a couple of years. It came some thousand years later. But it did come, and it did come perfectly and exactly according to the promise of God. 
And in this and in all of God's promises, it is no surprise its central focus, its central goal and its central fulfillment is found in Jesus. Remember the words which Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 19 to 22. It says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ. Every single promise of God finds its goal, its fulfillment in Christ. In Galatians 3, Paul outlines how the very promises made to Abraham find their fulfillment in Christ and is the, the possession of all those who are by nature in Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, as in he was the very thing to which it pointed to and who brought it to its completion and its fulfillment. Because Jesus is the goal and fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And just as we can be certain that all of the promises made to David have certainly come to pass, so also we can be absolutely certain that this king will indeed one day return to judge the living and the dead. Now you don't want to be the sort of person that would be immensely foolish to presume that Jesus who said he will return again and he will bring an, a, an eternal division between those who are his children who have tr turned from their sin, who have trusted him in faith that Jesus' death on the cross was a, a substitute for our death and that he's been raised to victory and he raises us to victory with him that he will return for us. But also that those who do not look and have trust in Jesus as having taken the punishment we deserve upon him, he will come as judge and we will need to bear that punishment that we deserve upon ourselves. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to seek and know your God while he may indeed be found. But it's not just the promises of David or the promises that Jesus will return that can be banked upon. Every single promise of God comes to pass. Now, you may already be a child of God, but at whatever, for whatever reason, at this stage in life, you are struggling with one of the promises of God. Maybe you feel like it hasn't come true in your experience. Maybe there's something that you're waiting for and it just seems like you're, you're waiting too long. Well, there's a couple of things I just want to say first. The first is, make sure that that promise that you're clinging to actually is a promise that God made. Like if this is coming from your understanding of a verse in the Bible, make sure you've understood that verse in its context. 
Don't just think because a, a particular book or a particular speaker says God has promised this for Christians. Don't, don't just take their word for it. Take God's word for it. Does it say it in his word? And secondly, if it does say it in his word, you do want to make sure that you are not claiming for yourself a promise that God specifically made to an individual for a particular context that isn't expected to be applied for all Christians for all time because you cannot expect God to fulfill a promise to you that he never made to you. However, every time you read a promise that God has made for all of his children, you, you don't just hang around and think, well, I hope it's going to take place. I, I'll just hang around in hope. Maybe it'll come to pass one day. No, rather you cling to him knowing the promises of God cannot be undone. He will fulfill all his promises. God, I'm open for you to work in whatever time, whatever way, but I know if you said it, you will do it. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, He's never failed a single child of God beforehand, and he's not going to start with you. We belong to a God who all of his promises come true. Find them. Embrace them. Embrace the joy of being in a relationship with the one who never fails, who never lets you down, but who carries out all of his good purposes for his glory and for our good. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to not always give us the things that we ask for when we ask for them. Because you know what is ultimately for our good. You know ultimately where all of our life circumstances fit within terms of your, your plans for us and your plans for this world. Lord, we thank you that every promise that we read that you have declared to be true for your people, we can hold on to as a certainty. That we will never be shaken when our experience might even seem to indicate otherwise. Because our, our circumstances, they change all over the shop. But you are the same yesterday, today and forever. We thank you. We love you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. And hopefully I will see you next week.